This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Last Dance, where I share stories of crimes that were committed on prom night. This is the second part of a two-part episode. If you haven't yet listened to part one of the Pelly murders, you should go to episode 168 and listen to that first. We left off where Jeff Pelly suspected of killing his family for 13 years, but with not enough evidence to bring charges against him for the crime, is arrested for the murders when a new DA decides that the circumstantial evidence is enough to bring Pelly to trial. This is part two of the Pelly murders. In April 1989, Jeff Pelly's father, Bob Pelly, stepmother Dawn, and two stepsisters, eight-year-old Janelle and six-year-old Jolene, were killed inside their home in Lakeville, Indiana. 17-year-old Jeff quickly became the chief suspect. There was no physical evidence tying the teen to the quadruple murder, and the murder weapon was not found. But detectives believed that Jeff Pelly was the only person with motive and opportunity to commit the crime. They based their theory on the fact that Jeff was the last person seen at the Pelly home before the murders took place. The motive for murdering his family, investigators believed, was his anger and resentment at his father for curtailing his freedom. But in 1989, prosecutors declined to bring charges against Jeff Pelly, citing the lack of enough evidence to take the case to court. Nevertheless, investigators continued to believe in Pelly's guilt, stating, only one person could have done it, and that was Jeff. In 2000, St. Joseph County Special Crimes Unit investigator Mike Swanson reinvestigated the Pelly murders. Even though no additional evidence was uncovered, the new prosecutor, Ellen Corsella, believed that there was enough circumstantial evidence to charge Jeff Pelly. A warrant was issued for his arrest, and on August 10, 2002, he was arrested for the 13-year-old murder. The prosecutor's probable cause document stated Pelly's motivation as, quote, anger at his father for remarrying after the defendant's biological mother died, that the defendant was very resentful of his stepmother and her children, and that the defendant was prepared to defy his father's efforts to punish him by limiting the defendant's ability to attend his high school prom dance and certain other prom night activities. Jeff harbored a strong dislike of his stepmother and resentment towards his father. Jeff Pelly spent 10 months in jail in South Bend, Indiana, while the prosecutor's office and Pelly's attorney fought over what could be allowed into trial as evidence. Finally, in May 2003, Pelly was released on his own recognizance and returned home to his family in Florida. On July 10, 2006, three years after Jeff Pelly was charged and 17 years after the murders occurred, his trial finally began. Chief Deputy Prosecutor Frank Schaefer laid out the state's case. Jeff Pelly had been angry with his father for grounding him from attending the prom. Several witnesses would testify that Bob told them Jeff would, under no circumstances, be allowed to drive his car to the prom. According to the prosecution, the timeline would show that the Pellys were alive at 4.45 p.m. on April 29, 1989, and only Jeff was home with the family until about 5.10 or 5.15 p.m. 
when Matt Miller testified seeing Jeff's car still parked in front of the parsonage. Another witness would testify that she'd dropped by the Pelley's home that Saturday night between 5.30 and 6 p.m. She'd knocked on the door, but no one had answered. All the blinds were drawn and the curtains shut. This, according to the prosecutor, was proof positive that the family had been killed before 5.30, which, in their minds, meant that only Jeff could have been the murderer. But the one big problem the state had was that the time of death of the four victims could only be guessed at, since no one had determined body temperatures, recorded lividity, or had taken any other measures to pinpoint the time frame in which the murders had occurred. Since the victims weren't discovered until Sunday morning, the defense would say that the murders could have taken place much later Saturday evening or even Sunday morning, making it impossible for Jeff to be the killer. For the prosecution's timeline to work, the murders had to have happened no more than 10 minutes before or after 5 p.m. To counter this, the defense brought in evidence to show that the murders may have occurred as late as Sunday morning. They pointed to things found at the crime scene that would indicate this. First, much was discussed about a cereal bowl and a spoon found on a table. Next to it was a little girl's white dress sock, a fancier type said to be worn by the girls for church. It was the defense's contention that the family had been getting ready for church just before their attacker arrived, which would have been on Sunday morning, not Saturday evening. Also found in the Pelly home by crime scene technicians were damp washcloths and a bath mat in the bathroom. The fact that they were both still damp suggested that they had been used on Sunday morning, whereas investigators tried to say these items were evidence that Jeff had taken a shower after committing the murders. The defense had an expert witness testify that the temperatures in the home would cause both of these items to be dry or nearly dry by the time they were discovered if they had been used before 5.30 p.m. the previous day. If anyone had used the tub or shower at the Pelly residence, it had to have been hours after Jeff left the premises, the defense argued. The prosecution claimed that the murder weapon came from inside the home. Although witnesses reported that Bob Pelly had sold or given away all his weapons by the time of the murder, Jessica, Don's oldest daughter and only surviving child, testified seeing a shotgun placed in a rack in the home before she'd left for the weekend. There was no gun in the rack when detectives conducted their search for the murder weapon. However, Jackie Pelly, Jeff's sister, said that the gun in the rack had been removed sometime before the weekend of April 30, 1989. In either case, the murder weapon was never found, even after an extensive search by the police. Pelly's defense attorney said that he'd had no time to ditch or hide the weapon in the short 20-minute window in the prosecution's timeline between the murders and Jeff arriving to pick up his date for the prom at 5.30 p.m. From that time until he was picked up by detectives to be questioned, Jeff had not once been out of the sight of others. The prosecution's motive for murder was that Jeff had been forbidden by his father to drive his car to the prom or attend the after-prom activities, including the trip to the amusement park. But Jackie Pelly testified that her father had given Jeff a last-minute reprieve on Friday night. Jackie said Bob told Jeff he would be allowed to drive his car, but only for that weekend. Afterward, he would be back on restriction, and the extra weekend would be tacked on to the end of his sentence. Jessica, Jeff's stepsister, was also put on the stand to verify statements she'd made to investigators after the murders. When asked by detectives where they could find Jeff, she had answered, at Great America. 
He said she'd been told on Friday that Jeff would be at the amusement park on Sunday. When asked who had told her, Jessica answered, I think it was my mother. Why would Don Pelly tell her daughter that Jeff would be at the park the next day unless she knew her husband had already given him permission to attend? The defense also called Darla, Jeff's high school sweetheart, as a witness. She was now in her 30s and a married woman. Over the years, she had been interviewed several times by investigators who thought that if Jeff had confessed anything at all, it might have been to his girlfriend. Darla always maintained that Jeff Pelly told her he was innocent. She testified that Jeff told her the night before the prom that he was going to be allowed to attend the dinner, the prom, and all the other activities after all. But prosecutors scored a win when she added that Jeff, quote, told me not to mention it. It was a sore subject and to keep it to myself, unquote. The prosecution pointed to this as evidence that Jeff was planning to attend prom without his father's permission. They also believed this was an indication that he was already planning the murders on Friday night. However, under cross-examination, Darla added that Jeff told her during the week leading up to the prom that Bob had been easing up on his restriction as they got closer to the weekend. All of this testimony went to the issue of motive. If Jeff had been given back his car and permission to attend the prom, there was no motive for murder, according to the defense. Because the prosecution's case was entirely circumstantial, it hinged on Jeff being the only person with a motive for murder. The prosecution would state it just this way for the jury. If not Jeff Pelly, then who? Who other than his teenage son had a motive to murder the Reverend Bob Pelly, his young wife, and two little stepdaughters? The jury began its deliberations on July 19, 2006. Two days later, they reached a verdict. Jeff Pelly was found guilty of four counts of murder. Before he was sentenced, Jeff spoke to the judge saying, quote, My deepest regret was that I was not home that afternoon as maybe, maybe I could have done something. My family tells me I probably would have been killed too. I think that would have been okay. I loved my family dearly and have spent my life trying to pattern myself after my father and furthering his ministry and his love for people. I would not and could not I did not do this, unquote. Jeff Pelly's sentence was subject to the laws on the books in 1989 when the crime occurred. The judge had the power to sentence him to the mandatory minimum sentence of 30 years on each count. The sentences could be served concurrently or consecutively, depending on the judge's ruling. He ruled that Jeff Pelly would be sentenced to the standard presumptive advisory sentence of 40 years and that the sentences would be served to be consecutive to each other for a total of 160 years in prison. Jeff's attorney, Alan Baum, was floored by the verdict and the sentence. He said there was no fairness in it and no evidence whatsoever was presented by the prosecution that proved Jeff was responsible for the murders. Baum found it unfair and grounds for an appeal that he was not allowed to bring in an alternate theory of who else might have had motivation to kill Bob Pelly. The judge had ruled against such a line of questioning when Baum asked investigators if they had pursued leads about Bob's reasons for leaving Florida so quickly. Baum believed that other leads should have been investigated about people that Bob may have been running from who could have posed a threat to him and his family. Calling it an unfounded rumor, the judge ruled against this. The jury then only heard testimony about Jeff's possible motivation for the murders. 
Both Jeff and his sister Jackie said that Bob Pelly had gotten mixed up in some shady financial dealings while employed at Landmark Bank in Florida. Jeff and Jackie told investigators back in 1989 they'd heard something about missing money or money laundering that their father may have had information about, which they believed led to their sudden move. Baum believed that investigators quickly decided Jeff was the murderer and didn't follow any other leads. They dismissed the idea out of hand, Baum stated, that Bob may have had other people who wanted him dead. But even Baum didn't know the extent of the questionable people Bob Pelly was associated with back in Florida. Nor did he know that just months before Bob's murder, another man was found murdered in Florida, who was directly connected to some of Bob's closest associates in that state. That story is next, right after a short break. When Jeff Pelly's parents, Bob and Joy, moved to Cape Coral, Florida in 1979 and 1980, they became fast friends with Philip Hawley and his family. While Phil Hawley's outward persona was that of a family man and a committed Christian, he had a checkered past and a questionable resume. Phil Hawley was the owner of several businesses over the years, working as a private investigator, debt collector, and construction project manager. In the 1970s, Hawley was investigated for fraud as the owner of a business called American Bureau of Citizenship, or ABC. Hawley and a partner claimed they could help undocumented workers gain legal status in the United States. Their clients paid to get assistance filling out forms, which Hawley said he would follow with the proper government authorities. But the forms were fake, and Hawley did nothing but pocket the fees paid. He may have done even worse, as he was suspected of turning his clients into immigration authorities himself. The Florida Bar also began an investigation into Phil Hawley to determine if he was providing legal advice without the proper license. In 1979, he agreed to shut down the company, and the matter was then dropped. At about the same time, the Pellies moved to Cape Coral. Jeff attended school with some of the Hawley boys. Phil and his wife Linda had four sons, Paul, Danny, David, and Martin. Martin was closest in age to Jeff Pelly, who was just a year older. The Pellies often spent time with the Hollies at their Fort Myers home. Bob Pelly and Phil Hawley became especially close. Bob Pelly married Don Huber in 1985, just a few months after Joy Pelly died of breast cancer. Don and her three girls moved to Florida, where Bob continued to work for Landmark Bank. Until one night in the fall of 1986, when Bob was called to the bank headquarters in Fort Myers. According to Jackie Pelly, the very next day, the Pellys left Florida for good, settling in Lakeville, Indiana. The summer after the Pellys moved away, Phil Hawley went into business with a man named C. Eric Dawson. Dawson himself was a con man and a fraudster, and the story of two shady characters like Phil Hawley and Eric Dawson going into business together would be a comedy, if the ending had not turned so very dark. In 1991, journalist Peter Francesina, writing for the Fort Myers News Press, reported in depth on the trail of fraud and deception that played out between Dawson and Hawley and ended in Dawson's body being found in a shallow grave on a plot of undeveloped property in Fort Myers. Dawson, originally from Michigan, aspired to get rich in Florida's fast-growing communities in the 1990s by developing land in and around Fort Myers. 
His first deal went bust when he assumed a $4 million mortgage on a struggling motor inn, hoping to partner with investors to turn it around for a profit. When he couldn't make the mortgage payment and the interest payments came due, he was forced to file for bankruptcy. He continued to invest in property using false bank statements to secure credit. Dawson repeatedly walked away from these deals, never making good on the loans. To raise more cash, Dawson next tried his hand at selling securities. In this, he was also not successful. He had judgments filed against him, which led to the Dawson's home and vehicles being repossessed. He was also fined $30,000 by the National Association of Securities Dealers and had his broker's license revoked. Undeterred, Dawson continued to come up with new and more inventive ways to make easy money. One of his scams was particularly vile. Posing as a good Christian man, Dawson duped two 90-year-old sisters out of their $1 million trust fund. The women, who lived in a church-based retirement community, were approached by Dawson and manipulated into believing that he would invest their money and use the interest to fund Christian missionary work. Soon, he had gained power of attorney and stolen their entire trust fund out from under them. Most of Dawson's schemes in Florida involved duping people into believing he was an honorable Christian man, but when it came time to do what Jesus would do, Dawson was nowhere to be found. Dawson's biggest land development deal was a project he called Family Land. Dawson told potential investors that he was building Family Land as a Christian community. A new church would be built, community centers, parks, and Family Land would even provide its own schools where children could receive a quality Christian education. Dawson's pitch was that by investing in Family Land, investors would be serving God. He often sought out investors at the church he and his family were attending. Meanwhile, Dawson was purchasing property on credit and spending lavishly on his investors' money. Even though Dawson was receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars from investors, he was always in debt. When his employees saw that his expenses far outweighed his assets and brought it to his attention, Dawson appeared to be unruffled, saying he already had several judgments against him and wasn't worried. Apparently, he'd learned to fleece his investors, keep cash on hand, some who worked for him recalled seeing tens of thousands of dollars in cash that Dawson kept in a box, and then plead poverty and walk away from his debts by filing for bankruptcy. He'd then start all over again with another round of gullible people. But in 1987, Dawson's world collided with Philip Hawley's. A debt collection company, the Credit Bureau of Fort Myers, was owned by Philip Hawley's sons, David and Danny Hawley. One of Dawson's investors threatened to report him to the IRS. He owed the man 40 grand, and to get him off his back, Dawson began working with Hawley's credit bureau to make payments on the debt. There, Dawson met Philip Hawley. Hawley had become a wealthy man. His private detective agency work had branched out into other lucrative businesses, including debt collection and auto repossession. With these profits, he purchased several properties, including apartment buildings in the Fort Myers area. In 1988, Hawley claimed to be worth over $12 million. If you can believe it, Dawson approached Hawley to offer him an opportunity to invest in a sure thing. Dawson said he had snatched up some prime real estate, including a beach condominium project in Fort Myers and 71 acres of land where an exclusive residential community was being built. The beach condo project alone, Dawson claimed, would provide a financial return of over two and a half times the investment. But of course, Dawson admitted to Phil Hawley, his credit was shot 
and he needed a cash infusion to bring the project to completion. He talked Holly into investing almost a million dollars of his own capital and co-signing loans for Dawson, according to Francis Sheena's reporting. Dawson also promised Holly his construction business would be awarded some of the building contracts. To sweeten the deal even more, he promised to throw in one of the beach condo units once the project was completed. Now, this is weird. Holly knew enough about Dawson's financial dealings to know getting into business with him was risky. Holly had also been a scammer himself in the past and had now gone legit, it seems. Perhaps he was still drawn to the idea of easy money and a fast return on his investment, something Dawson always promised. In any case, Holly, according to Francesina, mortgaged the family's credit bureaus for $250,000. He and his sons also mortgaged other properties. In the end, Holly claimed to have invested approximately $2 million in Dawson's projects. Well, you have to know that things weren't going to end well. Dawson kept racking up debt and the loans were coming due. The project stalled with no units being completed, no one getting paid, and investors losing money. No one more so than the Hollies. Then in September of 1988, Dawson left his home to meet with a potential investor and check on his property in Estero, where the family land project was slated to be built. After that, Dawson disappeared. His car was found in the parking lot of the Southwest Florida Regional Airport. Had Dawson fled from his failed projects and the millions he owed in loans and unpaid mortgage bills? Would he leave his wife and three children in the lurch to save his own skin? Some speculated he might. But three months later, hunters found Dawson's body on the wooded property he was developing in Estero. He had been shot in the back of the head, and his body was buried in a shallow grave that had been covered over with concrete. The gases from the decomposing body caused the concrete to crack. Wild hogs had rooted around the grave, and some of the bones were found protruding from it by the hunters. It was obvious that Dawson's murder had been planned and an attempt made to have it appear that he had fled the area. While investigating Dawson's murder, detectives began to look into his financial dealings. There were plenty of people who may have wanted revenge on Dawson, but Philip Hawley's name stood out. It was discovered that days before Dawson went missing, Philip Hawley and his sons Danny, David, and Paul took control of Dawson's major assets, including the beach condo property and the 71-acre Health Park development. Within a week of Dawson's disappearance, the Hawleys had cleaned out Dawson's office and negotiated with his creditors in order to keep the projects they had invested in so heavily going. The day Dawson's body was discovered, deeds were filed in court, transferring Dawson's properties to the Hawleys. It was determined that Dawson's signatures had been forged. Although the Hawleys were suspects in C. Eric Dawson's murder, investigators had no evidence to charge them with that crime. However, they did file forgery and grand theft charges against Phil Hawley and his three sons. The Hawleys were found guilty, but facing a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison, Philip Hawley received only 120 days in jail. He was given 20 years probation and community service, the judge citing his reputation as an upstanding citizen. His probation was lifted in 2004. His sons received only probation. Hawley tried to throw suspicion on people Dawson had done business with in Michigan. He claimed that Dawson's bad securities deals had resulted in financial losses for clients connected to organized crime in that state. When questioned about Dawson's murder, 
Ollie said his past had probably caught up with him. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. That's an interesting story, Esther, but what does it have to do with the Pelly murders? Well, here's one interesting detail. Philip Hawley, Bob Pelly's old buddy, was being investigated for the murder of Eric Dawson in the last months of 1988 and into the beginning of 1989. Investigators believe that the Hawleys, or someone in their employ, had killed Dawson in order to gain possession of his properties worth over $2 million in order to recoup their losses. On April 4, 1989, a search warrant was issued to search the home and offices of Philip Hawley. Three weeks later, in Indiana, a neighbor of the Pellies reported seeing a car with Florida license plates in front of Bob Pelly's home. Bob Pelly was also seen talking to a stranger in front of the parsonage and a black truck was parked nearby. The next day, Bob Pelly and his family were found dead. Could Bob Pelly have been in possession of some of his old friend Philip Hawley's files? that tied him to financial fraud or money laundering? Had he innocently or not done his friend a favor while he worked at the bank that may have put him in jeopardy of being investigated? Jackie and Jeff Pelly believed that their father had moved his family out of Florida after being called to a mysterious meeting at the bank one night. But could the meeting actually have been with Philip Hawley? Had Hawley warned him to get out of town? Of course, this is all speculation but it might provide another theory of who else could have been a threat to Bob Pelly and his family. The mysterious move from Florida to Indiana has never been fully explained. Add that to Philip Hawley's history of financial fraud, and we have to consider the possibility that Bob Pelly had knowledge of some illegal activities involving his friend or someone he was connected with. It's possible, like Jackie Pelly always believed, that this is what got her father killed. And there's one more really weird piece to this story that author Carlton Smith explains in his excellent book about this case, The Prom Night Murders. In 1976, a car was found submerged in the shallow waters off the causeway near Florida's Sanibel Island. The car was pulled out, but nobody was found. Had the driver been pulled out by the currents or by sharks? It was possible, but investigators marked it as unusual for no remains to be found near the wreckage. The car was registered to a Harry William Stewart, whose address was listed in Miami. The day after the car was found, a man called the Sanibel Police Department, saying he'd seen the news reports about the missing man. He identified himself as Harry Stewart's landlord. Stewart had rented an apartment from him in Fort Myers. The landlord's name was Philip Hawley. Hawley showed up with a lease made out to Harry Stewart, but signed only by Hawley there was no signature of Stewart's on the lease. The detective who met Hawley thought this odd. He asked to see the apartment Stewart had leased. Lots of unopened mail and mice droppings in the kitchen made the detective suspect that Stewart had not lived in the apartment for some time. He wondered if he'd ever lived there. Then insurance investigators began looking into the case. Three separate insurance policies covering Stewart had been taken out one with a double indemnity clause should Stewart's demise be caused by an accident. Without a body, they were investigating the claim. And the name of the beneficiary seeking to collect payouts totaling over $86,000? It was none other than Philip Hawley. 
insurance investigators, along with the Sanibel Police and the State Insurance Agency, all set out to determine if Harry William Stewart was really missing or if this was a case of attempted insurance fraud. It was discovered that the insured's name and birth date matched to Harry William Stewart, born in 1947, who died as an infant. Someone had used the deceased baby's birth certificate to apply for a Florida driver's license. That someone, of course, was suspected to be Philip Hawley. They suspected him of purchasing the insurance policies on the fictitious Harry Stewart, having a car registered to him, pushing it into the bay, and then trying to collect as the beneficiary. I'm not sure why Philip Hawley wasn't charged with fraud, because according to Carlton Smith, the insurance company declined to pay off on the policy, and that appeared to be the end of it. Hawley, I assume, was out not only the policy premiums, but the cost of the car that was found in the bay. Okay, but here's where it gets really weird. In June of 1976, four months after the car was found in the bay, someone using the name Harry W. Stewart with the same address listed on the car registration, applied for a U.S. passport in Miami. The birth date also matched the birth certificate for the infant born in 1947. But this time, because a picture was required for the passport application, a photo had been taken of the person pretending to be Harry Stewart. In 2008, Carlton Smith showed this photograph to Sergeant Mike Bowditch from St. Joseph County, who'd investigated the Pelly murders, and Mark Center from the Indiana State Police, who not only investigated the case, but knew Bob Pelly personally. Upon seeing the photo of Harry Stewart, taken in 1976, they both identified the man as Bob Pelly. What? Did I just blow your mind? Okay, now think about this. The passport photo, based on the false identification created by Philip Hawley, was taken months after the sunken car was found. Why would someone who was supposed to be missing and presumed drowned be applying for a passport? Now, this is just my own theory, but go with me for a minute. Could it be possible that Bob Pelly was made privy to his friend Phil Hawley's attempted insurance fraud? As Hawley was trying to collect the insurance payout, did Bob Pelly find out and try to stop him by applying for a passport? Think about it. If police or insurance investigators discovered that Harry Stewart whose car was found in the bay, had later applied for a passport in Miami, they might suspect that he had faked his own death and was hiding out in the Caribbean or somewhere enjoying a tropical drink, not turning into fish food in the bay. Then the insurance wouldn't pay out the claim and Holly would be foiled. It's just a theory, but something to consider. But there's one catch to this whole Bob Pelly is Harry Stewart story. First of all, Jackie Pelly also saw the passport photo and said it wasn't her dad. Second, the car in the bay slash insurance fraud operation took place in 1976, a full three years or more before Bob Pelly moved from Ohio to Florida. Even so, it sure is a very odd coincidence that Bob Pelly and Phil Hawley became friends immediately after the Pelly showed up in town. Bob Pelly may have had more secrets in his past than we'll ever know. That's all I'm saying. So which way do you lean on this case? 
Is Jeff Pelling guilty of murdering his father and three other family members because he was angry about missing the prom? Or did someone or something from Bob Pelly's past come back that led to the murders? Since I've got my thinking cap on, let me just give you a few more points to consider in making up your mind. That Jeff could have been angry with his father's rules and restrictions and exploded that day in April 1989 is definitely a possibility. Bob Pelly was not an easy man and could come across as quite strict and intimidating. Darla, Jeff's girlfriend, said Bob Pelly made her nervous, as he could be intense. Jessica, Don's daughter, for many years believed that Bob Pelly had committed a murder-suicide. She'd seen him angry and believed he might have killed her mother and sisters. Bob Pelly didn't just punish Jeff by grounding him from using his car. He made sure he couldn't drive it by disabling the car, hiding the keys, and canceling his car insurance. That's kind of like punishing your child not just by sending them to the room, but locking them inside as well. It's a pretty controlling way of parenting, and I can imagine it could be infuriating to a 17-year-old. But some people said that Bob Pelly's bark was way worse than his bite. I'd have to agree. He talked tough, but when push came to shove, he did whatever he could to save Jeff from the most serious consequences. For example, when Jeff was caught stealing more than once, Bob intervened to save Jeff from being criminally prosecuted by talking to the victims and offering to have Jeff make restitution instead. However, Bob liked to appear to others like he was a strict disciplinarian. Jeff, who'd committed petty thefts all over town, would have had to have been an embarrassment to his pastor father. Bob Pelly probably tried to save face by coming across to others as particularly hard on his son, but in reality, he often ended up letting Jeff slide. I think this is why so many of Bob's church members reported that they knew for certain Jeff was grounded that weekend. After hearing this from several people, the police instantly believed Jeff was lying when he told them his father had changed his mind and let him off restriction to attend the prom. It was kind of a case of the boy who cried wolf. Bob had often claimed he was very strict with his son, and he was taken at his word. In reality, Jeff's sister and friends both reported that Bob often changed his mind when it came to Jeff's punishments, and this may very well have happened that weekend. Bob's tough talk in front of others may have contributed to his son being suspected in the murders as it caused Jeff to come across as a liar when he reported to the police that his father had allowed him to take the car that evening. I'll give you one example of Bob's tough talk versus reality. I told you about how Jeff had been suspected of burglarizing a neighbor's home, and because the officer, Mark Center, knew Bob Pelly, he brought the matter to his attention. Center then met with Bob and Jeff. Bob worked things out with the officer to allow Jeff to make restitution so as not to be charged with theft. But in his telling of this incident, Bob told some of his church members that he had found out about Jeff stealing and turned him in to the police. Again, Bob was trying to appear in control and like he was taking a much tougher stance with Jeff than he actually was. If Bob had relented and allowed Jeff to take the car to the prom and all the other events that weekend, then there would have been no motivation for Jeff to kill his family. As far as when the murders occurred, I would agree with the prosecution that it happened on Saturday evening, not Sunday morning. Bob, Don, Janelle, and Jolene were all dressed in casual clothes. They were not dressed for church, as they would have been had it happened on Sunday morning. A bowl of popcorn was also found on Bob's desk, and witnesses said he liked to eat popcorn in the evening. 
Prosecutors believe Jeff was the murderer because he was the only other person at the house that evening besides the victims. But two witnesses said they saw other cars parked in front of the parsonage later that evening. I believe Lois Stansbury's account of witnessing the man speaking with Bob Pelly in front of his house around 5 p.m. because she had the time-stamped receipt to back up her memory. Lois only saw one man with Bob, but it's possible that there were two. Maybe one was already inside the house. I don't know enough about guns to be sure, but to me, it appears to make sense that two types of shells would point to two different weapons being used. If we decide that Jeff Pelly might not have been the murderer, then what happened? Here's one scenario. Jeff drives off to attend the prom about 5 p.m. We almost have to throw out Matt Miller's testimony that he saw Jeff's car at 5.10 or 5.15 still parked in front of his house. We know that Jeff was at the gas station at 5.20 and at Lynette's house by 5.30, about a 20-minute drive from the parsonage. So he couldn't have still been home at 5.15. Therefore, Matt's time has to be off. So Jeff leaves around 5 p.m. Someone, perhaps waiting for the only other male in the house to leave, then drives up to the parsonage where Bob is still outside. This is the man with the black truck, seen by Lois Stansbury. The next thing we know from witnesses is that the blinds and drapes are closed in the parsonage and no one answered a knock at the door. Crystal Easterday stopped by about 5.45 p.m. To the prosecution, this meant that the Pellies were already dead by that time, killed by Jeff. But what if the man in the black truck had a weapon and threatened Bob Pelly, forcing him into the house? He may have had an accomplice with him or perhaps someone who came later. In either case, once they got Bob inside, they threatened his family if he didn't comply with their demands. Then the blinds were drawn and the doors locked. And their vehicle? Well, several witnesses on Saturday evening and on Sunday morning observed that the Pelly's garage roll-up door was closed. Many reported finding this odd. The Pelly's garage door was always open. The killers may have parked a vehicle in the garage and rolled the door down to conceal it until they left. Once the gunmen had the family captive inside the house, they could take their time. Since it wasn't a robbery, we know that there was some kind of relationship between Bob and the gunmen. If they were somehow connected to the bank issue in Florida, perhaps they believed Bob had some incriminating information he brought with him when he moved to Indiana. Maybe they came to retrieve it, but Bob either wouldn't give it to them or didn't have it. This could be why Bob was shot, and then because Don and the girls were witnesses, they were also killed. When the gunmen first arrived, they may have questioned Bob as to the whereabouts of the other children. Knowing they weren't expected back that night, the murderers could have then taken their time cleaning up the crime scene, washing off in the bathroom, and removing all the evidence, including picking up all the shell casings and wiping down any fingerprints. Which, by the way, the detectives didn't ask the crime scene technicians to dust the house for fingerprints, as Jeff was their only suspect, and since he lived in the house, they believed it was unnecessary. One other person dropped by to see Bob Pelly that night. A woman named Brenda Hale, who was a church member, stopped in to see the pastor around 6 p.m., but found the church empty. She noticed the garage door was down at that time and that the curtains were drawn in the parsonage. She decided to go into the church to pray. She assumed the pastor would be along soon as he was there most evenings, especially on Saturday night to prepare for the next morning's sermon. But she never saw Bob Pelly that night. However, after a few minutes sitting alone in the church, Brenda said she heard the church door close and thought it must be Bob. 
When she looked up from her prayers, the church was still empty. She said she got an eerie feeling and decided to leave. She had planned to walk over to the Pelly's house, but decided not to and just went home. Could she have heard one of the killers? One other clue that Bob may have been forced into the house by the gunman was that when his body was found, he was still wearing his shoes. It was reported that the Pellies had a strict rule that no shoes were to be worn in the house. If he'd been confronted outside and then forced into the house, he would still be wearing his shoes. Jeff Pelley's attorneys appealed his sentence arguing the evidence presented by the prosecution was insufficient to warrant a conviction. They also argued that prosecutors had violated Pelley's right to a speedy trial as the one-year clock had run out while he waited for them to prepare for trial. In 2008, an appeals court agreed that the speedy trial provision had been violated and Jeff Pelley's conviction was thrown out. A year later, the state Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals decision and also decided that while all the evidence against Jeff Pelley was circumstantial, it was nevertheless sufficient for the jury to find him guilty. Pelley remains in prison, serving his 160-year sentence. A person posting on Reddit several years ago, whose name I could not find, pointed out the parallels between Jeff Pelley's case and Adnan Syed's. I found it interesting enough to share with you as we end this episode. Both Jeff Pelley and Adnan Syed were juveniles when accused of their crimes. Both had an extremely small window of time in which they were said to have committed the murders. Both had absolutely no physical or forensic evidence connecting them to the crime. Both outwardly exhibited normal behavior immediately before and after the crimes for which they were accused. Both had no behavioral or criminal record of note before being accused of murder. Jeff Pelley was accused of some petty theft, but no violent offenses. Both continued to this day to insist on their innocence. The Innocence Project took up Pelly's case in 2009. As of this year, the Indiana University McKinney Wrongful Conviction Clinic is representing Jeff Pelly in a motion for post-conviction relief and plans to present evidence of his innocence later this year. His sister Jackie continues to support her brother and believes he is innocent. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. A special thanks to all our new Patreon supporters. You guys rock. I've got a bonus episode coming out for Patreon members only. So if you want to be part of this special group, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to sign up. You will have my undying thanks. I'll be off next week for the Memorial Day holiday, but there is a new episode of my other podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime, out next week. So make sure to subscribe for more true crime goodness. There's a link in the show notes or find all the links to podcast episodes, sponsor links, resources, and all our social media on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Thanks once again. I wish you all health and happiness. And until next time, be good to one another.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.